Hello and welcome to Round Around We Go. I'm Emily, I use she and they pronouns. And I'm Paul and I use he and him pronouns. And today we are going to Camden Town. Camden Town opened on the 22nd of June 1907 and is on the London Underground Northern Line. Camden Town is in Fair Zone 2 and in the London Borough of Camden. Camden Town served 20.5 million passengers in 2019, reducing by 75% to 5.5 million passengers in 2020. Camden Town has step-free interchange between northbound trains to High Barnet and northbound trains to Edgware, but no step-free interchange between any of the other directions or step-free entrance or exit from the station. The architect of Camden Town was Leslie Green. The name Camden comes from Charles Pratt, the first Earl of Camden, who owned land in the area. In 1791, he laid out this land into plots and leased them for the construction of 1,400 houses, hence the beginning of Camden Town. The Earl of Camden's name comes in turn from his home at Camden Place in Kent, which again in turn was named after historian William Camden, uh, the builder of the previous house on the site all the way back in 1609. Camden Town Station is served by buses 24, 27, 29, 31, 88, 134, 168, 214, 253, 274, N5, N20, N28, N29, N31, N253 and N279. Labyrinth number 177 out of 270 can be found in the passageway to Platform 1. When you're inside Camden Town Station, it feels very complicated to try to move around. We went the other day and I felt like I was getting a bit lost. But actually, the station layout is pretty simple if you sort of imagine it from above. So Camden Town Station exists on a V. One side of it is Camden High Street. One side is Kentish Town Road. And actually, the vertex of the V is not part of the station. It's a bank. But on either side of the station, you have two entrances, both classic Leslie Green design. So that's oxblood red tiles, half moon windows, the same kind of design you see at Covent Garden. Or Hyde Park, where we did the whole episode yes, on we Leslie did the Green. Whole, well, the disused station entrance at Hyde Park Corner. Now, this design has been altered a bit, and we'll get to that later in the episode and as to why that's happened. But you can still see distinctive Leslie Green design on both sides particularly the Kentish Town side, which is the bigger of the two sides, looks more original. It even has two of the original lamp brackets sticking out, which are rare to still find on stations, and also has a few 1920s features, including a London transport poster niche, really, that there is now a tube map in and a roundel above the entranceway. Now, when you get inside the station, it has escalators up from the platform but in most times you need to take the emergency staircase down because the station is so busy and once you get down below the ground it feels like a maze but it really isn't 
it still has this same V shape. So you've got the two branches of the Northern Line that veer off there northwards. You've got the High Barnet branch on one side and you've got the Edgware branch on one side and they're still in a V shape underground. The original interchange passageways where the lifts would come down to are at that vertex of the V. So what we think of as a bottom of the V and those passageways still exist and you can get between the platforms there and you can actually see the bottom of where the lifts originally were and that's where you come down in the spiral staircase. The escalators were built farther up the V so that passageway is in existence between the two parts of the V there. On the platform, you get the original color scheme of the Leslie Green tiles, which is light blue, but they don't have the same patterns they used to have. And as many books point out, I'd say snarkily in these books, they point out that actually the double banding that you get in Leslie Green stations, where there are entrances and where the names of the stations are, have been quite unceremoniously blocked through to put the new escalators that were put in in the 1920s. But you do still have the same color scheme and you have a really lovely two Highgate sign that still exists on the platform that takes you up to Highgate. When we first drew out Camden Town Station, I know we both had a big sort of gasp of kind of fear of this station and what a big story it is to tell. And I think if you don't know the history of this station, it just seems like a sort of random, bland Zone 2 station where the two branches of the Northern Line come together. But interwoven in the history of Camden Town Station are so many stories that it's almost a microcosm of how development on the underground went throughout the years to give us the system we have today. The origins of Camden Town Station begin with the bill for the Hampstead, St. Pancras and Charing Cross Railway, which was proposed in 1892. Now, to put this in historical context, this is two years after the City and South London Railway opened, which was the first deep-level tunneled electric railway, and it was the same year that the bills for what became the Bakerloo Line, the Great Northern and City Railway, and the Waterloo and City Railway were proposed. This was a big boom for building underground railways, or at least proposing bills for underground railways. Now, the original route of the Hampstead, St. Pancras, and Charing Cross Railway went from Strand up Charing Cross Road to Tottenham Court Road to Hampstead Road, so sort of Warren Street area, then had one branch that went to Euston and King's Cross St. Pancras, and a second branch that went to Haverstock Hill, so sort of Chalk Farm area, and then up to Hampstead. Originally, Camden Town wasn't on the plans. They thought about it, but they were more focused on Seymour Street, which is actually the location of the current Mornington Crescent Station. But it was in the back of their minds when they were proposing this bill. And the bill received royal assent on the 24th of August, 1893. But its name was changed. It was now the Charing Cross, Euston and Hampstead Railway. So now you still had one branch that went up towards Hampstead and one branch that went to Euston but didn't go on to St. Pancras and King's Cross. 
1899, the act was changed again to authorize Euston to Mornington Crescent, which put Euston on the through line. So you no longer had a branch that veered off to Euston because that would have overloaded the main part of the railway. You just had a straight line that went up via Euston and then split at Camden Town, with one side going up to Hampstead, the other side going up to Kentish Town to connect with the Midland Railway Station there. Today we know that as the Thameslink Station at Kentish Town. The original plan was to have a cable-hauled railway because of the gradients, particularly up towards Hampstead, but by 1900, the powers that be felt that this could be built as an electric railway if they could raise the capital. But they couldn't really raise the capital through sales of shares. So on the 28th of September, 1900, the existing directors retired and they were replaced by Charles Tyson Yerkes. Now, Yerkes is a character that comes up again and again in the beginnings of the underground, but he was an American who came over and started buying up railway schemes. And in fact, this is the first one he bought. And on the 1st of October, 1900, he took over this line that became known as the Hampstead Tube for £100,000. He wanted to push through a few more changes, and the first of those came to Parliament in 1902, which extended the plan to go towards Golders Green. Now, this was quite unheard of and a kind of a shocking idea for the Brits who were looking at it, because they went, there's absolutely nothing in Golders Green. Why are you extending the line out there? But they said, oh, he's an American. This sort of speculative building is normal for Americans. So they passed it, even though the Hampstead locals were strongly against it because they felt that it would ruin the heath somehow. I'm not sure how they felt it would ruin. They thought the tunnel running under the heath would drain all the water that fed the trees. And I guess the bathing ponds as well. That would that would upset some people. Anyway, it did get passed in 1902 to go all the way out to Golders Green. And the first works of the project began in July of 1902 with the demolition of some houses at the foot of Haverstock Hill, so basically where Chalk Farm Station is today. Tunnelling for the Hampstead Tube began in September of 1903, and I think what's really interesting is how much engineering progress had been made since the City and South London Railway was constructed back in 1890, because the City and South London and the later Bakerloo Line, the Waterloo and City, they would have used the Great Head Shield, that famous bit of technology for excavating deep tube railways, basically a huge steel or iron cylinder in which form or so miners would use picks and shovels to manually excavate all of the soil in front of them to dig the tunnels. But for the Hampstead Tube and also for the Piccadilly Line, which was built around the same time, the Price Rotary Excavator was used for about a third of the tunnelling. And this was an invention of John Price of the contractor Price and Reeves, who had the contract for building a lot of the Hampstead Tube. And basically, again, it would be a huge steel cylinder the size of the tube tunnel. And then instead of having miners using picks and shovels to do the digging, there would be these six huge buckets on arms kind of sticking out the front. And they would rotate round about one and a half times every minute. And that would scrape away all of the clay in front of the tunnel excavator and dig the tunnel forwards. It's kind of a wonderfully steampunk looking thing. Which is very Camden. It is indeed. And actually also remarkably similar to the modern tunnel boring machines. 
and these could dig much faster than just miners in Great Hedge Shields. Tunnelling on the Bakerloo line with the Great Hedge Shield made a progress of about 22 metres per week on average. For the Hampstead Tube, with the Price Rotary Tunnelling machines, they could get up to about 49 metres per week on average. But to compare that with a modern tunnel boring machine used on the recent Northern Line extension down to Battersea, those can get up to a maximum of about 200 metres per week. So there's still been quite a bit more progress made over the last century. And with this very rapid speed of tunnelling, it was possible to complete all of that excavation pretty much by April of 1906. So track laying could get underway and construction of all of the station buildings. Camden Town would be a particularly complicated station to build because it was the first time there was ever a new tube railway built with a junction on the main running lines between two different branches. And they wanted to avoid having trains going in different directions, crossing over on the same level because that would cause conflicting movements and cause delays. And so the junction was built with the northbound tunnels on a higher level than the southbound tunnels. And that causes complete segregation of the trains on the different routes and makes things all really efficient. Of course, it made the junction difficult to build and rather complicated, although, of course, it got a lot more complicated later on, as we will discover shortly. It also meant that within Camden Station, there would have to be lots of passageways leading from the bottom of the lift and stair shafts to all the four different platforms which were provided for trains going on each of the two branches. Trial operations for the line began in May 1907, and it opened on the 22nd of June 1907. So they had quite a lot of time for trial operations when you compare it to the Circle Line, as we were talking about in the South Kensington episode. They really did a thorough job getting this ready. And it was opened in the official ceremony by the president of the Board of Trade, David Lloyd George. Not prime minister yet, just president of the Board of Trade. He drove one of the trains using a gold controller key and he accidentally let go of the dead man's handle. Now what's a dead man's handle, Paul? The dead man's handle is a safety device which has been used on London Underground trains since about this era and is still in use on Underground trains today. It's basically the handle which controls the acceleration of the train. It's really powerfully sprung. The driver has to keep it pushed down against the spring the whole time that they're driving the train. And if they let go, that means that the power cuts off and also the emergency brakes of the train apply. So it's there to protect against anything untoward happening to the driver and prevent the train just carrying on at full speed without them controlling it. So David Lloyd George, good at seducing women, bad at driving trains. On the opening day, and I love this, this is my favourite fact, they let the public ride for free. Ah, the dream. 150,000 people rode on that opening day. And because you now had this split in the line, the trains had to have destination plates. So they had ones to say Golders Green or the ones terminating a bit early at Hampstead or Highgate on the side of the cars. And to help the signalman at Camden... There was a plunger that the drivers would push at Mornington Crescent Station to suggest whether it was going to be a train towards Golders Green or a train towards Highgate to give the signalman a little bit of warning before it came in to get everything ready to go. The service on this line ran from 5.15 in the morning to half past midnight, and at peak times there was a train every two minutes on the Charing Cross to Camden part, so definitely a very regular service. But at the opening, this big grand opening that was started at Camden, 
Lloyd George said that he hoped this would not be the last tube railway London would see, but the underground group kind of felt otherwise. They were basically out of money. They had advertised this as the last link, as, as, as if this was the last underground line that would be built. And though they had authorization to have extensions to Edgware, Watford, none of these were built. And in fact, this would be the last underground line built for 60 years. But that doesn't mean that other extensions and other changes to the underground network wouldn't happen. And in fact, Camden is a place where a big change happened. In 1905, a couple of years before the Hampstead Tube had been completed, Charles Tyson Yerkes, the leader of the underground group, had died. And after it opened in 1907, it became apparent that Yerkes's predictions about how many passengers would use the Hampstead Tube had been somewhere between very optimistic and downright dishonest. To get the financing for the line, he'd said it would be used by 50 million passengers per year, and by 1909, it was actually somewhere like 29 million passengers who were using the Hampstead Tube. And this low number, it wasn't just because of his kind of over-optimism. It was also because there was now lots of competition from electric trams and motor buses, which were both technologies that had effectively developed in parallel with the time when this tube line was under construction. And with the number of passengers so low compared with what was expected, the underground group was certainly not in a condition to be extending its lines. They were instead facing almost bankruptcy. They had to undergo a huge process of reorganisation, and they were saved by several things. I won't attempt to count them because I got this very <laughs> Spanish Inquisition when I attempted this previously. <laughs> one of those was appointing Albert Stanley, who later became Lord Ashfield and is one of those key leaders of the underground group and then London Transport there was also a renegotiation of the underground group's financing and funding, which was all very tedious and rather technical to do with debentures and things like that that I don't really understand, but was actually probably the most important element to staving off bankruptcy in those really critical few months and years after the railways opened. Part of the plan for saving the underground group was through a combination of better cooperation with their competitors that were also providing transport in London and also using that and other methods to raise the amount of revenue they earned. And those two came together very simply by an agreement that was formed with both the other private tube companies and the private tram and bus companies to increase the fares that they charged so they would directly get more income from passengers buying tickets, something that would probably be considered anti-competitive practices these days. Yeah, uh, but uh, the fare raises sound familiar. <laughs> they certainly do. And there was better promotion of the underground group services as well. And again, in conjunction with the other companies running the transport services in London, especially with the other companies running the underground railways. And that culminated in an agreement that was pioneered by Albert Stanley to introduce the use of the underground branding, the name that we're still familiar with today, to be used by all of the different companies running underground railways in London, rather than all purely having their own names like, you know, the Hampstead Tube and the City in South London. They would all have the big underground sign on the stations and the maps. 
These efforts were highly successful and by the early 1910s the underground group was no longer fighting off bankruptcy but instead were now in a position to actually go beyond just voluntary cooperative agreements with the other underground railway companies and instead start buying them out and taking them over outright. And on the 1st of January 1913, the underground group took control of both the Central London Railway, the Central Line now, and the City and South London Railway, which was the very first of the deep tube electric railways in London. It had originally run from Stockwell in South London to King William Street, but by 1907 it had been extended all the way upwards to a terminus at Euston. The underground group wanted to effectively merge the city and South London in with the Hampstead Tube to form what today we know as the Charing Cross and Bank branches of the Northern Line. And this would be something that was really useful for them, because by this time the Hampstead Tube, with its two branches joining together at Camden and then feeding into a single line through central London, was resulting in that central portion of the line becoming incredibly crowded. In 1912 they were running up to 44 trains per hour through the central section of the Hampstead Tube, which is actually considerably more than we come even close to running on any one section of the Northern Line today. The plan was for the city in South London to be extended northwards from its terminus at Euston to join on with the Hampstead Tube and their massive existing junction at Camden Town, and also for the Hampstead Tube to be extended southwards from its terminus at Charing Cross or Embankment as we know it today, under the river to join on with the city in South London at Stockwell. The city in South London would have to be completely rebuilt to enable through running with the Hampstead Tube trains, because as the very first of the deep tube lines, it had been built with considerably smaller tunnels than all of those which followed it, something that was recognised almost immediately as being a bit of a mistake. We'll get into that rebuild in another episode, because it is, it is a big story. Absolutely. And the underground group got powers to conduct this reconstruction and connecting up in August of 1915. But of course, by that point, the First World War was underway. So all of the work had to be put off until after the war had come to its conclusion. Now, in 1919, following the massive sort of over 70% increase in underground traffic during the First World War, Frank Pick came up with a report into all the possible ways they could contend with that new number of passengers. And that was something we briefly mentioned in our previous episode as well, when we were talking about the plan for a kind of 1919 version of crossed rail as an east-west express tube railway. But something else that was included in that report was an extension of the city in South London going south all the way to Carsholton and an extension of the Hampstead Tube northwards from its original terminus at Archway, which is now called... Or, sorry, at Archway, which... it At Highgate, yes. which is now called Archway. That's the way round it is, yes. And they wanted to extend northwards from there to High Barnet, but also to Alexandra Palace, and from Golders Green to Collindale, and then potentially via the Midland Railway all the way to Harpenden. It's such a ridiculous... That's like, just look at that on a map and compare it with how much further north it is than where any other tube line goes or has ever gone. It's a ridiculous distance to go. Like, I would consider that the north. I know I'm very much a Londoner, but that would be like, that's the north to me. But as it happens, they still had no money at this period. 
1921, in an attempt to combat massive unemployment, the government introduced the Trade Facilities Act, which would provide guaranteed interest payments on capital that was raised for infrastructure projects. Now, the Treasury was not willing to fund extensions all the way to Harpenden, but they were willing to pay for the reconstruction of the City and South London Railway and its extension up to Camden Town and also the link of the Hampstead Tube down south to Kennington. Now, that rebuild of the City in South London and the Hampstead Tube junction with the City in South London at Kennington are going to be tales for another day. The Kennington Uh, Day, probably. Indeed. (laughs) But of course, we are going to tell the story of Camden Town. And I think in a way, this junction that was created at Camden Town is actually a microcosm of the whole story of how the underground network came to be unified and joined together and how incredibly successful that was. So the city in South London would have to be extended northwards from Euston. The interesting thing here is the city in South London's platforms at Euston, they are on a lower level than those of the Hampstead Tube, and they are pointing due westwards. So from Euston, the tunnels head off in a westerly direction. They loop round as they head north, bypassing Mornington Crescent Station, and then come at Camden Town Junction from a westward direction. And that means many of the diagrams of the incredibly complex junction at Camden Town, which I'd thoroughly recommend having a look at, are actually rather simplified as they show it being the kind of southeast branch of the junction, which goes over towards the bank branch of the Northern Line, the city in South London. Whereas in reality, it's the southwest branch, which will then later curve round and go over to the east. And it's worth saying that on the current tube map, these are also on the wrong side. So it looks like the bank branch comes through Euston and then on the right-hand side goes up and connects at Camden Town. And then the Charing Cross branch is on the left-hand side with Morning Crescent. But that's not correct. They're actually swap sides. But they've done that because it's easier to read and interpret that way. Some of the early versions of the Beck-designed tube map did actually show it being the geographically accurate manner. But it, yeah, it just ends up being a loopy mess that you just don't need on a basic tube diagram. So to dig these extension tunnels from Euston up to Camden Town, they actually had three different shafts were excavated downwards, uh, one of them in Ampthill Square, where they had great head shields digging southwards towards Euston. There were two shafts just by Mornington Crescent Station, where they had the great head shields digging south to Ampthill Square and northwards up to Camden. In total, about 1.8 miles of new tube tunnel were constructed, requiring 80,000 tonnes of spoil to be excavated and 13,000 new iron tunnel lining segments to be installed. And all of this excavation work was carried out by Welsh miners working for the Molem engineering contractor. And who would have thought that Welsh miners were the ones who built the Northern Line that eventually ended up in Margaret Thatcher's constituency? At Camden Town, the original Hampstead Tube Junction was replaced with a spectacular new one, which would enable trains to move between either of the two southern branches of what's now the Northern Line, the Charing Cross and the Bank Branch, and either of the two northern branches today going to Edgware and High Barnet, without there being any conflicting movements between all those trains going in different directions simultaneously. You should absolutely find some of the diagrams, because I can't just do this junction justice in a podcast description. It's quite amazing with all the different tunnels, eight different sets of points. It would have been controlled by a signal box with 43 
three different levers in it originally, and that would have seen 110 trains per hour working in both directions combined through the junction, requiring 1,184 movements of the levers in the signal box every hour. That's... that's unbelievable. That's a big job. That person... That person better be paid well for their job. I mean, it would have been the busiest signal cabin on the entire London Underground. Once all of this was completed, the city in South London, as it was still known at the time, reopened between Moorgate and the junction at Camden, and then onwards through either of the two northern branches on the 20th of April 1924, which was Easter Day, as it happens. An interesting day to be opening new bits of the underground. The rest of the city in South London from Moorgate down to Clapham Common reopened on the 1st of December 1924 and then it wasn't until September 1926 that the Hampstead Tube got their connection to the city in South London at the south end of the route at Kennington. Now although many of the city in South London stations had been rebuilt with escalators during this time, that hadn't happened at Camden Town during this phase of reconstruction and it wasn't until 1929 that Camden Town was rebuilt replacing its lifts with escalators and that required the Camden High Street facade of the station to be remodelled in actually an impressively subtle sort of way for the time. They weren't wholesale demolishing the original Leslie Green facade, they just kind of shifted the central one of what was originally three arches over to the right a bit to join it up with the most right-hand arch. Yeah, it's worth looking at some of the pictures of this because it honestly looks like they just took a slice out of it like you would a cake and pushed it together. It's remarkable how good it looked. But I say that you need to look at photos of that because it doesn't look like that anymore. Despite the massive capacity increase that had been achieved by the combining of the city in South London with the Hampstead Tube in 1924... By the late 1920s, the Morden to Edgware line, as it was now known, was massively overcrowded with letters to newspapers complaining that there were up to 88 people standing in each carriage. Something had to be done about this. In 1936, J.P. Thomas, the operations manager of the London Underground, visited New York, accompanied by some of his colleagues, including the mysterious WPN Edwards, who we first talked about in our episode on Boston Manor and then solved the mystery of in our episode on Faden Boys. And they'd been particularly impressed by the express tracks on the subway in New York, which enabled trains to skip some stations. So between 1936 and 1939, the Underground came up with several proposals for the construction of express bypass lines, which would increase capacity and reduce journey times by branching off from existing lines and then running fast through trains, which would skip many of the stations and then rejoin the line again at a later point. And some of these lines were proposed for the Northern Line with various plans, either including Camden Town as a station that was skipped or having platforms at Camden Town, depending on which iteration they were looking at. And this was intended to be basically a successor to the well-known 1935 to 1940 New Works programme, which we've talked about before, and be incorporated into phase two, the 1940 to 1945 second phase New Works programme. Now, you might be spotting the problem with that plan. Of course, in 1939, World War II breaks out, and all of these plans to build bypass lines are scrapped. 
But as many people know, the tube played a very important role in the war, not just moving people around, but also as a place for people to shelter. Now, we'll tell stories of people sheltering in other stations, but there were shelterers in Camden Town as well. But Camden Town was also the site of a direct hit from a German bomb. Early in the Blitz on the 4th of October 1940, the Camden High Street side of Camden Town Station was hit by a bomb. This bomb destroyed the furthest left of the three arches on the Leslie Green facade, which was never replaced, and it also sadly killed five people in the process. Because there were people sheltering in tube stations, the government needed to find better solutions for places for people to shelter, and they took the idea of finding places to shelter and this idea for these fast bypassing underground lines and put them together into quite a clever solution had it ever been fully realised. The government commissioned London Transport to construct between 1940 and 1942 eight massive air raid shelters all of which would be built underneath existing stations on the Northern Line and the Central Line of the London Underground. These could be used to shelter up to 8,000 people at a time during the Second World War, and they were built with the intention that after the war, they could be turned into parts of new express London Underground lines. The story of these shelters is absolutely fascinating, and we will tell it in full in a future episode, but one of them was constructed at Camden Town Station. Uh, you can still see the entrances to it today. One of them is just to the north of the station on Buck Street, and the other is to the south of the station in a car park just off Arlington Road. They're both sort of circular brick and concrete pillbox looking buildings, so worth having a peer at if you're in the Camden area. And of course, there never was the money to construct these deep tube express lines after the war. Instead, the shelters were put to all sorts of different purposes. The one in Camden, as far as we know, is currently in use as archive document storage. Now, since the Second World War, Camden Town Station has remained relatively unchanged. And this presents a problem because Camden Town was getting massively overcrowded. And as the century went on and into the 21st century, things just got worse. Indeed, the level of overcrowding at Camden Station reached a point where on Saturdays, all passengers had to enter the station using the old spiral staircase down to platform level, with the escalators only being for exiting passengers. And on Sundays, the station was exit only, which was incredibly inconvenient for anyone living in the area who wanted to go anywhere on the underground. So from the late 1990s onwards, the underground began working on schemes to reconstruct the station to increase its capacity. And in 1996, they came up with a project which would totally rebuild the station in a way that would actually have made it very much like the stations on the Jubilee Line extension, for example. They would have dug down from the surface to create a huge new concrete box, which would form the entrance of the station, with four escalators going down from the ground level entrance into the bottom of this concrete box. There would have been two low-level concourses, one stacked on top of the other, one of which would have been at the northbound platform level, and then one just below that at the southbound platform level. There would have been three lifts going down to both of them to provide full-level access for everybody using the station. And these concourses would effectively have been at the bottom of this giant open atrium space, 
coming down from street level with the uh, buildings then up above that. So this would have hugely increased the capacity of the station by creating this massive open interchange space between all of the platforms on both of the two branches. However, there was a problem with the plan, which was that in order to construct it, the underground would have had to demolish effectively the entire block of buildings on which Camden Town Station stands, including the existing station entrance, designed by Leslie Green, the Buck Street Market, the Electric Ballroom, the HSBC Bank, which Emily mentioned is on the kind of corner of where the station is, facing southwards, and the Trinity United Reformed Church. And then in their place, there would have been constructed a massive new oversight development. The 90s version of that plan included it being a glass and concrete office block with a cinema as part of the proposals. It's so 90s, just a giant multiplex in the middle of Camden. And that was deemed totally inappropriate for the location. In 2000, that first proposal was rejected by the Mayor of London, Ken Livingstone. London Underground came back and had another attempt starting a public consultation on it in 2003, which was slightly scaled down in terms of the size of the oversight development. It would have just had a seven-storey glass office block on top of where the station entrance would be, and then a five-storey block of flats to the north of that. Yeah, I'm not much of a NIMBY, but that is just very out of character for the area, very out of place. Well, indeed. And in fact, the official report said it would be completely at odds with the character and appearance of the surrounding area and detrimental to the Camden Town conservation area. And the planning inspector said that I consider that these detrimental impacts would far outweigh any benefits of the above ground scheme and the proposals overall. And therefore, in 2004, this scheme was totally rejected as well. And that left all work on Camden totally in abeyance. Effectively, the underground felt that it wasn't worth going toe-to-toe with Camden Council and the local residents again, and would rather move on to better, easier opportunities for improving the capacity of the London underground. However, the number of passengers using Camden Town Station continued to increase, and around 2015 it was felt that, according to the Underground, by 2021, passenger demand at the station is expected to grow by a further 40% on weekdays. Sadly, that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, as we've seen from the uh, passenger figures we quoted at the start of the episode, it's it's gone down enormously instead, but of course the Underground couldn't predict a global pandemic conspiracy theorists, that's not a point for you. And as well as the number of passengers using the station increasing who are exiting and entering in Camden, there was also a capacity constraint on the Northern Line itself. In 2014, a signalling upgrade of the Northern Line had been completed, which enabled trains to run at a frequency of 24 trains per hour on the Bank Branch and 24 trains per hour on the Charing Cross Branch. But the line was still massively crowded, and in order to improve the number of trains any further, the only way to really achieve that would be to split the Northern Line back into two separate lines again. The problem is that even though Camden Town Junction is enormously efficient with all its different routes to avoid conflicting movements of trains, there's just only so many trains you can feed through it in each hour. Whereas if you split the Northern Line into two separate lines with 
all the trains on the Bank branch going off to High Barnet, all the trains on the Charing Cross branch going off to Edgware. You'd be able to run up to 36 trains per hour on the Bank branch and 32 trains per hour on the Charing Cross branch. Also, it would be so much less confusing for anyone who doesn't regularly take the underground because I know that's just a constant problem that people working at a station like Euston get when people are confused as how to use the Northern Line. And indeed at Camden Town, you get the problem where southbound passengers, if you ask which platform do you need for, say, a Charing Cross branch platform, the answer is either of the southbound platforms because the junction is to the south of where the station is. It's a station almost as confusing as Canning Town, which almost has the same name. It's like they put a theme together. Now, the problem is that if you want to split the northern line into two different branches, and therefore you no longer have trains going from both the Charing Cross branch and the Bank branch to either of the northern branches because it's now two totally separate lines, passengers will have to change an awful lot more at Camden Town because these days, especially passengers coming from the north end of the line into the centre of London will tend to get on a train that will go directly to their destination, but now about 50% of them would have to change. And it was estimated around 2015 that 14,000 passengers per hour leave the station, 16,000 passengers enter during the PM peak, but you'd be adding another 22,000 passengers per hour interchanging. And the tiny little passageways at Camden Town simply didn't have anywhere near the capacity to cope with that. So a reconstruction of the station was absolutely desperately necessary. Of course, the previous attempts to rebuild everything on the existing station site had come to nothing and Transport for London didn't want to have another go at that. But interestingly, another option came to light. One of the reasons for the 2004 rejection of the scheme proposed then was the enormous length that the works would take and the disruption they would cause. In fact, so lengthy and protracted would be the works that they had to build a whole new separate station entrance under that proposal to be temporarily used while the main one was being bulldozed and rebuilt. But the particular problem was the amount of disruption it would cause to the Hawley Street Infant School, which is just the north of Camden Town Station, with many years of noise and traffic and it being a horrible environment for the pupils who would be trying to study there. Yep, I've taught year two. You don't want all that level of construction on top of the noise that's already in your classroom. Absolutely. But rather conveniently, in 2008, Hawley Street School was massively damaged by a fire. That's not another thing for conspiracy theorists. It was just an accident. And moved away to a new site which opened in 2018, leaving their previous site conveniently right next to where Camden Town Station is open for reconstruction. So around 2013, Transport for London started consultations with Camden Council and then with the public on a new reconstruction proposal. And this would build a brand new entrance to the north of the existing station on this former Hawley School site. And again, it would be built using a box excavated downwards towards platform level. New entrance there, three escalators and two lifts going down to a set of new excavated passageways which would connect up to the platforms of the station as they currently exist and hugely increasing the capacity for passengers to come and go from the station and also providing enough extra interchange capacity that everybody would be able to change between the two branches of the northern line as needed and of course providing full level access throughout the station as well. 
Conveniently, about 70% of passengers exiting the station head to the north, so this new exit would be far more convenient for them than the existing one is. And the great benefit of this scheme is that the current Leslie Green entrance to Camden Town Station would remain totally unaffected, would remain in use for passengers throughout and after the works, and all of the surrounding historic buildings in that part of Camden would remain in place as well. The intention was that construction would begin around 2020 and be completed around 2023 to 2024. And you're probably spotting the problem with this. In fact, things started to go wrong in 2017 when plans to buy extra trains to increase the capacity on the Northern Line had to be cancelled because of some quite complicated financial reasons. And then in 2018, with the huge delay and increase in expenditure for Crossrail, that meant Transport for London had to make massive budget cutbacks, especially because government funding was reduced by £700 million per year and fare revenue was dropping in the aftermath of Brexit. So by the end of 2018, the Camden Station redevelopment had to be indefinitely postponed. However... Despite that, there is still a very strong need for something to be done to increase the capacity of the Northern Line and of the station, in particular because of High Speed 2 terminating at Euston, which is served by the Northern Line. And in the December 2020 Transport for London Comprehensive Spending Review, there was a proposal, quite seriously made, that Camden Town Station would be rebuilt between 2024 and 2028. So it does look like that plan might be back on the table again. We'll see. We can hope. Outside of the tube station, Camden Town is also an area with a really rich history of transport. And Camden Town actually developed as an area really because of the coming of the Regent's Canal in 1820. The canal connected the Grand Union Canal to the London's Dockland, so goods were being moved through the area. And then on top of this, the London and Birmingham Railway being built to Euston in 1837 made it an area where there were good yards, where there was a lot of industry. And in fact, the railway line really split up Camden as a place. The east side of the railway line was very poor. The west side towards Regent Park became the very wealthy area. And in fact, the east side, what they, the St. Pancras side of the railway, was really disreputable. And there was quite famously in 1907, the Camden Town murder taking place there. Now, this is one of those sort of Jack the Ripper-esque kind of murder stories that has been really looked at by a lot of people and really analyzed over the years, even though it's over a hundred years old and it's difficult to solve a murder that old. But the reason I brought it up is because we watched the BBC series Shadow of a Noose from 1989, and you can find it on Daily Motion, the Camden Town murder. And it is about this event, and it has Peter Capaldi playing the suspected murderer. And I thought I'd just bring it up because I figure there's probably a fairly big crossover between the thick of it and Doctor Who fans and people who listen to our podcast. So I, I thought I'd put that in. It's a very overdramatic show, though. 
When the London and Birmingham Railway came through Camden, Lord Southampton owned most of the area and he insisted, he didn't like the steam engines, they made too much noise, so he insisted that the trains be cable hauled up from Euston to Camden where they would meet their locomotives. And also there were so many goods yards up in Camden, that's where they would get goods loaded on. Now, one of the really fundamental things to understand, to understand the Camden area, so if you know the area, the markets, the locks, the area where the goods market is, is that there were two levels created. There was the regular ground level that the ground was, and then there was a railway level created. Now, the reason the second level was created was because the railway had to travel over Regent's Canal, so it needed to be high enough to let the barges come under it. And it also was a really good use for the spoil that they dug out of Primrose Hill Tunnel and created this higher area. And if you know the area today, the markets in Camden, which I'll get into in a minute, you have to walk down to get to them. And this is because of this second level that was created that was 4.5 meters above, which they called railway level. Now, one of the biggest parts of this goods area, this industry area, was the horse stables, because you needed horses for so many things. And the stables are quite remarkable. To this day, are one of the best intact stables that you have in London, if not in the rest of the country, and show a lot of the different innovations of stabling through the years, including a horse hospital, which is exciting because Paul was so excited in our Tottridge and Whetstone article about the horse hospital there, and you still have the horse hospital within Camden Market. Now, the redevelopment of this area as a market took place in the 1970s, particularly in 1973, when an old Victorian warehouse, which was owned by T.E. Dingwall and had Dingwalls written on the front, got converted into a performance venue. It was a very famous performance venue. Lots of notable bands, musicians, comedians have performed here. In fact, it was recently renamed the Powerhouse, but still exists. And Dingwalls was a big, trendy attraction for people to come to. And the following year, on the 30th of March, 1974, a few traders got together and opened the Camden Town Market. There were 16 traders. They were selling antiques, jewelry, arts and crafts. Very, very small market. Opening on a Saturday, although interestingly, two years later, it was moved to a Sunday. They got a Sunday trading license and then it opened continually on Sundays. The present Camden Market opens all throughout the week, but the busiest day is still Sunday. It is still known as a Sunday thing to do, which is why, as Paul mentioned previously, from 1999 until the pandemic, Camden Town Station was closed to incoming passengers on Sunday afternoons because of all the people coming to the Camden Town Market. Now, the Camden Town Market from the 70s was a place associated with innovation, youth, arts and crafts. It was really a booming sort of alternative culture place. And I think there's still some of that there. I mean, I haven't been to Camden Town Market in a long time. I went on a tour of it maybe about eight years ago. And 
we talked a lot about the history, but when you walk around, you sort of feel there's a lot of what look like cheap imported knockoff clothes and less sort of individual craftspeople or people who are starting their own brands and those sorts of things. That's probably a byproduct of just the price of renting a booth in there. Which is sad because it was really designed as a sort of creative workspace. It was bought by the developers to be this place where artists could work and create new things. But saying that, I look down at what I'm wearing, which is a skirt and a cardigan from the brand Collective that I know started in Camden Market. Granted, that was nearly 20 years ago now, but there is still some innovation. But it does feel like that sort of arts-focused element of the market has shifted towards a slightly more commercial one. I get a feeling that people always say that Camden Market was better maybe 10 to 20 years ago when they were kids. My memory of the market is visiting after a family trip to the zoo when I was a child and seeing on sale a phone in the shape of an Intercity 225 train and thinking that was really cool. And I certainly haven't seen any of those for sale in Camden Market recently, so it must have got worse since then. One thing we wanted to give a mention to, because it's been in the press quite a lot over the past few years, is the proposal for the Camden High Line. Now, this is based on the New York High Line, which is a park created on a old elevated railway. Now, the Camden High Line would start in Camden Gardens, which is just to the northwest of Camden Road, London Overground Station. You would go up onto the High Line from there. You would go through Camden Road Station on an area that is now disused because the tracks used to be quadrupled there, but that was closed in 1870, so the bit that is closed would become part of the High Line. You'd walk down across Camley Street. There's actually eight railway bridges that this High Line would cross, and it would end at the north part of York Way. So York Way is the road east of King's Cross that runs northward from there. So this would take you to an area just a bit north of the newly redeveloped areas north of King Cross. Now, this does seem like a pretty dreamy, wonderful project, possibly a little bit too dreamy, but actually things seem to be moving. There was a lot of crowdfunding done for it. And on the 15th of February, 2021, the winners of the architectural design contest were announced. Unsurprisingly, the winners were James Corner Field Operations, who were the ones who developed the New York High Line, as well as part of the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. But they were going to work with local Kentish Town-based VPPR architects, as well as London artist Hugh Locke and the community consultation organization Street Space and Dutch garden designer Piet Ulof. I'm sorry, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, among other people. So it was going to be a large collaborative project. The idea is that the Camden High Line will open in phases beginning in 2024. So as far as we know, this project is going ahead, although I couldn't see any update beyond the 15th of February 2021 when the architects were announced. Now, I think the idea is an exciting project. I think it's unfair to suggest it's unlike anything else in London, because I know very well the Parkland Walk, which is on a disused railway in North London. But this one would, of course, be more central and be in the Camden area. 
I hope it happens. There has been some talk also of re-quadrupling the London Overground there to ease congestion, particularly with freight. I don't know if anything has moved on that, but that would, of course, put a bit of a stopper on the Highline project. But we'll see if it opens in 2024 or any other time. I know it's quite difficult to understand where I was talking about as well. So do check out their website. It gives you a really clear view of where the project would go. And if you're in the area, I hope you get a new park soon. All right, it's time for Onward Connections. And I am so excited because I have changed buses at Camden Town probably a thousand more or more times in my life. And I get to choose one of my favorite buses, which is the 88 bus. It goes from Parliament Hill Fields to Clapham Common. It is the Clapham Omnibus. How exciting. I love the route of this bus because it's so unusual. It doesn't follow many other bus routes. So it goes from Camden Town through sort of the Regent's Park side of things, sort of swirling pattern through central London, the north part of Regent Street through Oxford Circus, and then does a bit of a winding route through Westminster via Vauxhall to Clapham Common. It's a really fun route, takes you places other buses don't go. I highly recommend. to pick out the next station. I'm so excited. As we mentioned before, we make these podcasts in chunks of eight because that's sort of a manageable workload for us. So we will be taking a bit of a break before we release the next eight podcast. So I'm really excited to pull this one out because this is sort of our comeback podcast. So let's hope for a good station. Give the bag of Russell, reach in. Nowhere too obscure and rural. Here we go. Ooh, that is a good one to return to. Where are we? We're going to be talking a lot more about the city in South London, or the Sizzler, as I call it. Mm. Angel. Nice. All right, we'll be back with that. We made it, Paul. We finished Camden Town. With only a couple of hours to spare. Yes, we're actually finishing recording the bulk of this episode about four hours before it goes live. I do want to apologize because listening back and editing, I noticed I kept calling it the Camden Town Market. I think that's because I kept accidentally calling the station Camden early on. So I started overcorrecting and calling the market Camden Town Market as well. I also inexplicably said Tottridge and Whetstone article instead of podcast, but we all make mistakes, right? Indeed. We do want to say, this being our last episode for a little while, a massive thank you to people. Paul has become absolutely obsessed with the data from this podcast. Every time I look at him, he's on his phone looking at it. And our listener numbers have almost tripled from the first eight episodes we release. And we're really, really pleased with that. And we just want to say a big thank you to everyone for listening and for sharing the podcast. And we just ask that people continue to do that. You know, share it on social media. Tell your friends who are train enthusiasts or London Underground enthusiasts about it. And also please rate, review, however you can do that on your podcast app of choice. We really, really appreciate that. So thank you so much. And speaking of someone getting involved with the podcast, interacting with the podcast, we want to say a big shout out to Rail Maps on Twitter. They sent us a absolutely 
unbelievable response to our last challenge with the tornado going from Gunnersbury to Camden Town. It was pretty incredible, wasn't it? It was fantastic. A beautiful spiral across more different tube lines than I could possibly have imagined. And trams. It had the trams. And said it they were a couple of glasses of wine in when they made it. So very, very impressive. We have another map-based challenge, and this one you may have a few months for, so you can really dig into. Because Camden Town and Angel are both on the Northern Line, we are having a not the Northern Line challenge. Now, Angel being only on the Northern Line will mean you will have to take the Northern Line to get there, but we want you to come up with a route, any route possible, so it can involve anything on the tube map. It can go on 12 different lines, but as few Northern Line stations as you possibly can. So send us that on Instagram or Twitter, that's at roundalroundpod, or email us at roundalroundpod at gmail.com we got anything else um i don't know that was a legitimate for the podcast oh, I question see. not just uh... <laughs> i don't know have we got anything else <laughs> i don't think we have anything else uh, just another big thank you and obviously our normal credits we make this podcast ourselves i'm emily turner i'm paul burkett gray and our art is by the amazing colleen mcisaac you can find them at little foible art on instagram and please come back we don't know when we'll be back But we are a bit busy in the next few months. We're going to Canada for a few weeks to take the train across Canada. So we will be back, hopefully. I don't want to set it. I don't want to set it. Some point in the summer, I hope. I hope some point in the summer. Wonderful. Thank you. And I hope you join us again. Usually we do our references at the end of the episode, but this one's a bit of a long one. And apparently they are the longest list of references we've ever had. So we will put those in the show notes with a link to those and hope you have a great time between now and when we come back. When we come back, there will be Crossrail, which isn't an underground line, so it doesn't affect our podcast, but exciting new transport openings. Join us in a few months for Angel.